0: Well, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation all year long, the last book of the Bible, and now we come to this lovely vision of eternity in chapter 21, when God will make all things new. Finally, we're done with all the beasts and the dragons. The great prostitute of uh, Babylon has fallen beast, the prophet and the devil have all been thrown into the lake of fire those whose names are not in the book of life have gone there too along with death and Hades there is no more deceiver, there's no more tempter, there's no more accuser of the brethren there's no more wickedness even in the hearts of God's people and That's where we begin in Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur. I'm sorry. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So mainly today we're just going to walk through this passage line by line. So let's begin with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth... For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The first heaven and the first earth, of course, are a reference to Genesis, where in the first words of the Bible, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And now it's saying that that first heaven and earth have passed away. We saw this last week in chapter 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Now does this mean that the planet and the heavens just vanished? And a new one is created? Or is this a a resurrection or a rebirth of the present planet and heavens. I assume it is a transformed earth and heavens, like our bodies and like Christ's body. But I don't know for sure. Also, the sea, where all the monsters came from, is gone. And there's no more sea which blocks the way of the people of God to the promised land verse 2 and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband a lot of us are country people or maybe suburban people but did you know that one day we're going to live in the big city Again, we see lots of symbols here. It's a city and it's a bride. And the whole book is this way. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. They all refer, of course, to God's people, his church, as it says in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. And she is coming down out of heaven from God. This is the ultimate presentation God has prepared her for this. And now he presents her to his beloved son. You know, in every culture, weddings involve the presentation of the bride. And all of them are pointing to this moment. For here, far surpassing the presentation of all the brides in history, Here she is, the bride of Christ in all her glory. How her groom loves her. How he rejoices in her. How he has waited for her. How great a price he has paid in order to marry her today. Remember when God created the world in six days? Genesis tells us that he saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. Well, Isaiah 53 verse 11 tells us that at the end of all of Christ's painful redemptive work, our suffering Savior shall see and be satisfied. And this is the moment I believe that that comes to fruition. This is what Jesus came for. This is what he died for. This was the joy set before him which moved him to disregard the shame of the cross and give himself to its death willingly. You and I were made to be loved. We have yearned for love ever since we were born. We want someone to delight in us. Someone to light up when they see us. We long for someone who thinks the world of us. We want to be treasured and cherished. And even if we found love on earth, we never found it in its ultimate form. We're never fully satisfied by any love on earth. But at last... Here it is. Perfect approval. Perfect acceptance. Perfect fondness. Perfect adoration. This is what we've been groaning for, as Paul tells us in Romans 8.23. Now what will we be doing? Thinking about how beautiful we are? No. No. 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us that when the Lord Jesus comes, he will be marveled at among all who have believed. Just as he will delight in us, so we will marvel at him. Think about when two people are in love. It's almost magical. It's like they've been carried into another dimension expressions like, they've fallen head over heels in love with each other, or they're madly in love. But here's the amazing thing. God created all that romance, all that passion and infatuation, that obsession and attraction, so that we'd be able to get a glimpse of Of the love Jesus and his bride will have for each other on that day. Verse 3 and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The dwelling place of God will be with man They're moving in together. No longer do they have two separate dwellings. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Now, what does this mean specifically? I don't know that any of us can really grasp it. All we know is that it's going to be wonderful and marvelous. Far beyond anything we've ever experienced on earth. For we shall see him face to face. Intimacy with the Lord more intense, more palpable, more visible, more tangible, more accessible than anything we've ever experienced before or dreamed possible. Ever since the fall of man into sin, you see, the relationship between God and man has involved barriers and separations. Originally, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and barred from re-entering the people of Israel. Even when God brought them close, he still distanced himself from them through barriers between them and his presence in the Holy of Holies. But when Jesus died upon the cross, the curtain was torn. And God's people were now invited to boldly come into his presence. But we are still held back by our own sinfulness and by the fact that we can only see dimly walking by faith and not by sight. But on that last day, the final barriers will be removed the relationship will be completely restored and reunification will be complete. This will be the climax of human existence. Oneness with God. Like marriage, as Paul draws the analogy in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. My dear friends, this is as good as it gets. This is the ultimate thrill human beings can enjoy. The highest pleasure, the highest fulfillment, the height of human ecstasy. C.S. Lewis said, Away with tears and troubles, united in wedlock with the eternal Godhead him itself, our nature ascends into the heaven of heavens a creature whom the angels if they were capable of envy would envy let us lift up our hearts now verse 4 the first half of it anyway he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore this doesn't mean that he will wipe away every tear that is in their eyes at the time. It means that he will wipe away every tear that has ever been in their eyes. For the scriptures tell us that he is storing up the tears of his people in a bottle and recording them in his book in Psalm 56, 8. So it's more then that there will no longer be any reason for tears. The mourning, crying, pain, and death that it mentions, that's talking about the future. That's why it says there won't be any. But he's also going to deal with wounds from the past. Pain that God remembers, whether we remember it or not. You see, in some deep way, hurt sticks with you, deep down inside, even when specific incidents are forgotten. And this isn't just the tears which came out from your eyes, it includes the tears that we kept inside. I've got a lot of tears waiting to be wiped away by my Lord on that day. And as I press on, it means so much to me to know that he is storing up comfort for all those tears. And I know that there are many even here who have more tears than I do to be wiped away. It seems to me that this means that in heaven we're not just going to leave the past behind and move on. But we're going to go back over our lives and deal with everything until it is all healed. We will revisit our earthly lives, presumably being given understanding of why things happened and being shown the glory of God in it that we couldn't see at the time. And we'll see how God was caring for us in the midst of it and having compassion on us and protecting us from it going too far even while we were experiencing suffering or trauma. The next line, which is the end of 4 and the beginning of 5. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Everybody knows that there's something very wrong with this world. That it needs to be restarted somehow, revamped, renewed. What many don't see is that it's not just something very wrong out there. It's also something very wrong in here with each one of us. Something wrong with me and you. Not just with those guys over there. And God, who all through history has been the master of rebirths. Of starting all over again. In so many people, in so many institutions, in so many ways. He's the one who started the whole earth over again in the time of Noah. Well, he is now going to restart everything, but he's going to restart it in a way that's even more complete than in the days of Noah, because there are three things that this renewal is going to have that Noah's didn't. Number one, he's going to rem- he is going to remove all the spiritual powers of evil, which we've read about in chapter 19 and 20 second of all he's going to remove sin from the hearts of everyone even God's people which happens when God's people are presented to Jesus at the great wedding supper of the lamb it says he will present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing but holy and without blemish in Ephesians 5:27 and third <clears throat> will remove his curse from the world which we see happening in chapter 22 verse 3 no longer will there be anything accursed so this is the great transformation he's talking about when he says the former things have passed away behold I am making all things new and what a great day that will be First, this rest of verse 5, God says, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now it would be easy to skip over this little line here, but there's something very important going on here. This is actually the fourth time in the book of Revelation that God has commanded John to write down all that he's seeing and hearing. There's actually one time where he says, don't write this down, but all the rest he wrote down and according to God's command. You know, one of the important questions that we should be asking ourselves when we read the Bible is, where do I find myself in this story? And here is one of those places that we find ourselves in the book of Revelation. You see, the one who has received this series of visions in the book of Revelation was the Apostle John. But here in these four verses, we see that these visions weren't just for John, but for us. God commanded John to write down what he saw and heard so that we might be the recipients of these things. And this is God's pattern. God's word is first given to an individual and then God ensures that it gets written down as he does here in 21.5 to extend his testimony into the future to make it last, to make it permanent. In other words... While John was experiencing all these bizarre and glorious visions, God was not just thinking about John. God was thinking about us. He wanted us to get this stuff too. God could have performed a continuous miracle by protecting and sustaining his work. his word in all form as it's passed down to the generations. Or he could have chosen to speak through contemporary apostles and prophets in every generation. But he didn't. Instead, he chose for his word to be revealed and then written down in the Bible. And he wants us to rely on his word even though it is ancient. And have confidence of what he says here, these words are faithful and true, even though they're old. Verse 6, the first half, God said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. What is done? Well, God's project of redemption in human history, it's all been accomplished now. You see, ultimately history is a great work of art being created by the greatest artist of all. Long ago he began it, starting with nothing. And the project takes a very long time. And along the way there have been many critics, art critics, Complaining about his work. Many point out its deficiencies or insist that it's taking too long. But the artist keeps saying, It's not done yet. And in this vision, we see the moment when God steps back from the easel and he says, It is done. It is done. at that time there will be no complaints and no criticisms, but only acclamation. He has done it right. He has done it perfectly. There is none like him. He is the master of all masters. He started it and now he has finished it. We were so wrong to doubt him. second half of verse 6 he says to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment now this drinking of the water of life language is used often in the Bible and it's especially apropos in a thirsty land where it's a good metaphor of the grace of God flowing into our thirsty souls but on that day to come we will drink from the spring of the water of life much more fully than anyone ever did on earth. We won't be hampered by sin. We won't be held back by any kind of barriers whatsoever. We will see him face to face and dwell with, in love with him. And it still will all be for free. Jesus paid for it himself. Come, everyone who thirsts, to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat come buy without money and without price Isaiah 55 1 verse 7 the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be his he will be my son remember the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. How each one ends with a prize promised to the one who conquers or overcomes. By the way, some translations have it conquer, some translations have it overcome. It's all from the same Greek word. So these prizes that are promised to those who conquer, those who overcome. Each described some aspect of the eternal reward given to the believer. Well, now we come to the end of the book of Revelation. This is one of the cool things about Revelation. Come to the end of the book and every single one of the things that was promised to these churches, these seven churches, we find in this picture that's painted of the end. Every single one of them is mentioned in chapters, you know, 19 to 22. Uh, In the notes I have a list of each one where it is found in the letters and then where it's found in um, in the end of Revelation. So you can look that up on your own. But it's a beautiful thing. But also this verse... By which the book ends with a similar promise. So each of the letters ended with a promise of a prize. Now the whole book ends with a promise of a prize. And this one sums up all the others. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. Now the one who conquers. Remember that to conquer means... To be a true Christian, one who by persevering in faith proves that his faith is real. As it says in 1 John 5 4 and 5, and remember, the same author here, Apostle John, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And what is the reward for this? This heritage. It says in verse 7. In other words, everything that I've been describing, this is his heritage for the one who conquers. But also, I will be his God, and he will be my son. And when you read this, think the prodigal son and his reunion with his father at the end of of, uh, his rebellion. And think that as we are persevering through this exhausting marathon we call life, at the end of the race is this embrace, this falling into the Father's arms of love. That is how it ends. Then finally verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the treasures described in this, these glorious treasures described in this passage are not for everyone. Some will spend eternity in the lake that burns with sulfur, with fire and sulfur. They will not only die once, as we all will, or almost all, but they will die a second time. An eternal dying. A perishing that never ends. But don't take this list as a list of unforgivable sins. That's not the point of it at all. We know from Jesus that there's ultimately only one unforgivable sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Matthew twelve thirty one. Rather, this list is a kind of a list of kind of lifestyles that are so contrary to faith in Christ that someone who lives this way shouldn't consider themselves or be considered by others as a Christian. In other words, no matter what you say, if your life proves you're an unbeliever, you're an unbeliever and your profession is a lie. As John said, in his epistle the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And this list is not exhaustive it is illustrative and we know that because there's at least three other very similar lists in the New Testament and none of them are identical to each other. There's one in Ephesians 5 5. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There's another one in 1 Corinthians 6 9 to 11. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that verse proves that it's not a list of unforgivable sins because these people were like this and God saved them and they came out of this lifestyle. And then finally in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, and that proves that this is an exhaustive, and things like these, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now perhaps the most surprising thing on the list here in Revelation 21.8 eight is cowardly. You know, usually we think of cowardly as just a form of weakness. Um, But this cowardly refers to a full-blown people-pleaser who only cares about what other people think and always adapts himself to the expectations of others, unwilling to be disapproved of. Even for the sake of Christ, this kind of person can't maintain a Christian testimony in the face of those who are offended by Christian truth. Well, beloved, here before us we have a beautiful picture of the heavenly home that is awaiting us. We know that this world is passing away, although we have no idea when it's going to happen. But for now, this earth is where God calls us to live. It's the place of our growing and it's the place of our service. But as we live in this broken down place, we hold the promise of this new world in our hearts. We have our feet planted on the cursed, wearisome planet. But our hearts are set on the new Jerusalem. And on the day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Let us pray. Oh Lord. These things are so much more glorious than any trouble that we face in this earth is painful now we know that one day we'll see that clearly that the troubles the light and momentary troubles of this world cannot be compared to the glory that is to come and yet dear Lord these pains that are referred to in scripture as light and momentary troubles they still hurt a lot We thank you that you've given us this vision of a time when you will wipe the tears from our eyes. And we pray that more and more, dear Lord, you would give us the ability to focus on these things and set our minds on the things above and not on the things of this earth. And that these things would grow bigger and more vivid to us in our minds. so that we might continue to be able to put one foot in front of the other in the confidence that at the end we will be able to fall into the Father's arms of love. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us to enjoy your presence at the table. And we come now with expectation and with hope that you will meet us here because Lord there is no proof of your love for us like the proof of the cross where you gave your life for us and you went through things more difficult than anything you're requiring us to go through all for our salvation. And so, dear Lord, we partake with joy, with gratitude, and even with celebration. Until that day when we will partake with you at the great wedding supper of the Lamb. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.